Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Clarkson Ignite Podcast. I'm Alex. And I'm Tyler. Today we are visited by Professor Suresh Daniela. Um, his research is primarily in fluid dynamics and aerosol mechanics. There's little particles that float around in the sky. Yeah, so this one was really interesting. Uh, we talked a lot about different low-cost sensor technologies that are currently in development, uh, as well as the demographics of, you know, how can we democratize uh, air quality across various locations. Mm-hmm. Bioaerosols were really interesting. Uh, it was really interesting uh, him talking about how that affects uh, climate, ozone, things like that. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. As well as the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Topically relevant. All right. Well, let's get into it. This is Across the Campus. Hello, everybody. And we are here today with Dr. Suresh Daniela. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you guys? <laughs> really good. Really, really excited to have you on. Um, so Dr. Daniela does research in um, aerosol and uh, fluid mechanics. And um, we're really excited to have him on to discuss all of the innovations and cool things that are coming out, especially um, in context to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Tell us about yourself. Um, what kind of drove you to Clarkson? What kind of uh, drove you into uh, this field? Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I, I came to Clarkson uh, uh, from Southern California where I was doing my postdoctoral scholarship uh, in Caltech. Uh, so it seemed like I had too much sun, too much warmth. I had to sort of balance it with... Uh, with, uh, you know, cold and darkness here. Uh, no, I think, you know, Clarkson to me, uh, you know, is one of the powerhouses of uh, aerosol science. Um, you guys probably don't know some of the older people who have passed by here and, and established Clarkson as a leader in this field. Uh, Milton Kirker, uh, who was a faculty member here uh, probably through the 80s, uh, um, just a world leader in aerosol science. And after him, uh, Phil Hopke, you know, I was here until just a few years back who who between them they 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 just brought up the reputation uh, of Clarkson as being one of the top three places to do air quality work um so you know when I got an opportunity to come here, I just jumped on it and uh, it it also turned out that it was a time when they were hiring not one person in the field but three people so you know we we really had an opportunity to uh, come work together and build this group, and that to me was very exciting. Sweet. Um, so, how did you, or how did you first get started with, um, with, like, aero and fluid dynamics? Yeah. So, you know, fluid dynamics. Uh, my my undergraduate degree in in India in uh, IIT Madras uh, was in naval architecture, designing ships. As you can imagine, designing ships means you know there's a lot of fluid mechanics to it. Um, and, and in you know in in uh, full disclosure here, I just did not like fluids the first couple years because it just like it was overwhelming. It seemed very math heavy. Uh, but as the co- as the program progressed and uh, and uh, especially towards the end when we do a, what's equivalent to a senior design project here, it was a computational project where we were modeling. I was modeling flow around a ship. Um, to me, you know that that just brought together all of the uh, uh, the the mathematical theory and the physical understanding, all of it together. I was just able to visualize it, 
and uh, to me just you know the 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 complexity there and 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 sort of the art that was within fluids uh somehow clicked uh and i knew i wanted to do more of fluids um but uh you know when i when i got to graduate work and this was in uh, at the university of delaware uh, there was an opportunity to 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 almost go diametrically opposite you know from water all the way up to the uh, to the other side to the atmosphere uh and uh, so this this opportunity came up where i you know I, it was a project to model air quality um and uh and and you know when i when i told the faculty member you know i have no knowledge of of you know what what aerosol is but i'm i i like to do something related to fluids uh you know it it i i was told it's it's the same thing you can learn uh, uh, the necessary background and contribute and uh and, and it turns out, it turns out uh, you know as you go farther and deeper into some of these topics you begin to realize that that some of the physics and the math is the same you know it just it takes a slightly different form but a lot of the background material i need is the same uh so jumping into it using some of the old uh, math and physics background that i picked up uh it seemed like i was able to you know tackle some of the problems in the, on the air quality side of things uh and then moving on to phd where i said you know i wanted to get my hands dirty doing experimental work trying to figure out how do you generate these particles how do you measure it uh that uh that got me really hooked i just realized that uh you know there's there's just so much innovation in in trying to study particles that you cannot see because you know right now as we are sitting and breathing and talking here we are putting out particles we are breathing in particles natural and you know man made and so on uh but we can't see any of these things and and now you can imagine any any time you are trying to study what you cannot see it's just uh uh you know it's it, it's very interesting uh, to me uh and uh, and so that uh it just you know it, it stuck with me and uh, uh well been working on on that uh, ever since mm, that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely how the research track goes as they throw you in you're like i've no idea how to do any of this this is really intimidating <laughs> and then you start to visualize it and you're like okay i you know what i'm i actually i understand the full project now i think i could do this but yeah so uh, you relate to it uh, now now that you're in grad school i think uh, oh yeah definitely yeah. at first when i when i joined my research group i was just they were just like hey we need you to make this right now and i was like sure <laughs> i was like yeah i could do that i was like just typing away googling everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah the first thing is say yes and then just go to google and say uh not that we had google then but uh uh but you know there's there's uh there's definitely a certain advantage to to being willing to learn and i think you you you're figuring this out whether it's through google or otherwise uh because yeah once you say yes you're mentally ready to tackle the problem mm-hmm. and then um so you're into aerosols um so could you tell us a little bit about that and uh how that has affected or i guess um in relation to the covid-19 pandemic and the research that you've done um with that how does that relate so you know now aerosols have become much more you know uh, a common uh, term uh, in in just regular uh, vocabulary here which is a good thing uh but but for those who don't understand right so aerosol would be 
this collection of particles in in gas, so those floating particles, um, and uh, and and there's uh, and and this is you know uh, an age old phenomena. If you have oceans that are breaking and generating particles, you've got aerosol above the oceans. Um, when people first started fire, they started creating uh, you know, anthropogenic or human generated particles, which is now also integral to uh, global health and climate change. Um, uh, but the biological particles, uh, you know, uh, have have been forever uh, around. Uh, and actually, the, some of the oldest measurements of, uh, uh, you know, aerosol particles in the air have been of biological particles in the air. So when, when people first put out a sort of a plate, a glass plate, and, and left it out in in the open in 1800s to see what might be collected in there, and then they go look under a microscope, most of what they saw was biological material that's floating around. So there's always biology in the air, you know, plenty of bacteria, fungi, and obviously virus too. Um, uh, with with the pandemic, of course, uh, you know, what we've all become very familiar with uh, is that some of the biological material is, is coming out from us talking and breathing and you're putting it out from our respiratory system and uh, this has the potential to take you know pathogens that that might be in us bacteria or virus and putting those out as airborne particles um, and uh, and conventionally in in in, in uh, studying airborne pathogens the folks on the medical side of things have imagined that these particles have largely come, uh, or have been most concerned about particles that have largely come from coughing and sneezing. These would be big droplets that would fall within a few feet of where you're putting this out. And uh, uh, and when the when the pandemic was in full force, and uh, and we started hearing about masks and uh, and uh, social distancing, uh, we recognized that there was a a need to to make people better aware of the science behind this. So we started a. I don't know if you guys were uh, made aware of it, but there was a there was a Clarkson-driven uh, activity to to bring science to the community. So we started a, a weekly seminar series on you know what is what's COVID nineteen and what what the uh, you know what is the science behind it. So this I think the first talks were end of April, early May of twenty twenty, um, and one of the first things that that I did in my talk, which was the second talk in the series, was that uh, was to recognize that the six-foot spacing is actually a bit outdated uh, concept for social distancing. That works when you're coughing and sneezing and you're putting big particles out that will literally fall down within six feet. Uh, but when you're talking and breathing, you're putting out smaller particles that can float around for a much longer time. And... Uh, and 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 so it was it was very clear very early on in the pandemic that that uh, that the on the from the medical side of things they were getting this slightly wrong you know they were they were looking at it from the from the older uh, uh, framework so to speak of big big particles that beyond six feet are not of concern and we wanted to set the uh, the uh, you know the knowledge right on that and and so through these talks. Uh, and, and subsequently, there have been other aerosol scientists who have, and we've, we wrote some 
popular or, uh, news articles ourselves when there were others who have done this. Uh, we've been able to impress upon CDC and other uh, uh, decision-making bodies that we've got to worry about smaller particles, which can still carry enough viral load that they can create infection, and these can exist beyond six feet. And uh, and so that was my sort of jump into the pandemic research. Uh, same time, at the same time, uh, we also recognized very early on in uh, in uh, you know March and April that if we were to tackle this effectively in class, because initially, if you remember, uh, it was just before spring break, we said, okay, the, we are going to go online. And it was initially decided we'd only go online for three weeks or so. We'd come back. So we, we asked the question, you know, could we come back? You know, is the ventilation system good enough? So we immediately went into classrooms and asked the question, if I sprayed particles in our different spots in the in a big lecture hall, how long will they linger? And uh, what we found is that, you know, uh, if if you turn down your ventilation system, which it was, an, you know, turned down to conserve energy and so on, these particles will linger for an hour plus, which means, you know, I um, and if I talk, put particles out, these can linger for an hour. Everybody breathing, there's just a possibility that others breathing these particles in the room could be picking it up. And with masks, if you get the right kind of masks, uh, we showed that there's a benefit of up to maybe 70 80%, 90% reduction in these particles. Uh, when I say right kind of mask, as we, we determined very early on, people aren't likely to get their hands on to N95 masks. Uh, and even if they're dead, you know, those, uh, it's way difficult to be teaching with those and so on. And so we recognized very early on people are going to be wearing, you know, loose-fitting cloth masks or uh, or or surgical masks. So we looked at the efficiencies of those, looked at what, how that could leak out, how could we cut those uh, part- particle populations down, um, and, uh, and and determined that you know, if you have the right ventilation, we could be cutting the the particle population in the room that's, you know, that we are emitting uh, down within 10 minutes if you can if you can ramp up the ventilation, which allowed you know. Uh, so which which meant that when we did come back, finally, we did not obviously come back that semester, uh, but then we, when we came back the next semester, uh, the ventilation rates were up in these rooms. And if you remember, you know, our class times were spaced by about 20 minutes, and that was to let the particles from one class sort of get washed off before the next class started. Um, so, yeah, so we realized very early on that, that, that what we've been studying forever, and we have the tools for it in our lab, could be used to to help the university, you know, firstly understand what the systems were and, and to also then bring back the students safely. And so that was my sort of dive into the pandemic. So it's a long answer to, to, to the short question. We might have dated that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know if I answered this fully. Was oh, yeah, enough? no, definitely. Okay. No, definitely. absolutely. It was fascinating. Uh, so in I guess in the simplest of terms, uh, I'm just wondering, like, how do you begin to measure those types of things with certain devices and the effectiveness of different fabrics versus other fabrics with masks and things of that nature? Um, how does that research kind of – how does that process work? Again, this is, you know, this is fascinating because you know, we're putting out particles right now. We can't see it, right? Now the question is how many of these particles are trapped by the mask? So we need special equipment to, to measure these particles. And recognize that these particles we're talking about as I'm breathing and, and talking, I'm putting out particles that are typically smaller than, 
about 5 micron. And for reference, your hair is about 100 times wider than that. All right? The width of your hair is about 70 micron. Uh, so, And we're talking about things that are 100 times smaller than the width of your hair. And so we need special tools to be able to do it. Um, and, uh, and, and so we have those in the lab. And some of these uh, are, for example, we would use light scattering tools. So these are ones where uh, you sort of see that, not exactly, but it's very similar to seeing particles floating through the beam of light that's coming from your window cell, right, from your window, through your window. You look and you see particles are just floating around. Is that, is that spectroscopy? Uh, it is, it is uh, uh, spectroscopy with, based on light, light scattering, yes. Uh, so, so we use light scattering spectrometry uh, to, to characterize the abundance, how many particles there are in the room, what sizes they are. Um, and, uh, and so that's one technique. And we've got a lot of other techniques because just, again, these are particles that have complex shapes, complex densities, and so on. When you use different techniques, we get a slightly different picture about what those particles are, uh, and and we have to combine those to to get a bigger picture of what's happening. Interesting. What sort of tools um, are you using in order to track these? Like, is it just the um, is it just the scattering of light, or is there any other tools you use? Um, so there's actually quite a few other tools. The scattering of light works great until about 300, 500 nanometers. Um, which again, if you remember, I'm putting stuff out that's five micron. A tenth of that is 500 nanometers. So when you go below that, and the virus itself is about, you know, one fifth of that. It's about 100 nanometers. Uh, and so if you shoot light on it, the wavelength of light, if you know, you know, somewhere in the 400 to 600 nanometers. So we'll just, you know, you can't, you you, you can't, you don't scatter a lot of light with small virus particles. So we've got other techniques including moving the particle in electric field. Uh, and we can, uh, if, you, if you can charge them, we can move them in electric field, and then we can measure their size and, and count. It actually goes back, this technique goes back to, uh, as, as a lot of overlap with what Millikan did with his oil drop experiment and got a Nobel Prize for. Uh, that, is, that technique is, uh, has been honed, uh, and, and we use that to sort of, we can measure sizes of particles down to a few nanometers with that. So there's, there's what we call electrical-based techniques, electrical mobility, there's light scattering. Then we have other ones that are based on inertia of particles. Uh, so a whole host of techniques that we'll have to combine to get a bigger picture of what's happening. Interesting. So you could directly measure pollutants like in any sort of atmosphere. All right. Well, speaking of atmosphere and <laughs> measuring pollutants in different atmosphere, I know that you, um, along with other uh, researchers, developed um, a way to measure um, particulate matter. Um, what, what was it? Sub 2.5? Um, what is that, by the way? So so the uh, so, you know, particles in the air – exists over a very broad size range. You know, they can be anywhere from a few nanometers to tens of microns. It turns out anything smaller than 10 micron is what, when we breathe, can go into the deeper lung system and can will will usually have to be uh, removed through the body. And and they have greater health effects than the you know larger particles that we can remove right in your nostril or you can cough it off. And smaller than 2.5 micron. They go deepest into your lung, and 
in general, they are produced through, you know, burning stuff, through combustion. And so they have potentially more carcinogenic stuff. So EPA limits how much particles there are in terms of mass, you know, how much we can put out or we can have in the air that's smaller than 2.5 micron. So the, the idea being that if you have too much of that, you're now creating a greater health risk. So PM 2.5, which is a mass of particles smaller than 2.5, is a regulated quantity, right? If, if numbers get too high, there are penalties and other things that kick in. And uh, and so that's a metric that's, uh, that's, you know, in the U.S., EPA measures in, you know, 4,000 different locations in the U.S. Uh, and we have uh, consistently, consistently uh, brought down this this metric PM two point five has consistently dropped since the nineteen sixties or nineteen seventies, and if you if you clearly you're too young for this, but if in nineteen sixties you're walking the streets of L A, you couldn't see sometimes a block down because of the the pollution, uh, and, and that uh, you know, and from there to now where air quality is dramatically improved, it's because we have cut down PM two point five through these regulations. I remember I actually saw something quite recently um, about that. It was – weren't the – there was a certain uh, type of particulate matter that was affecting the ozone layer particularly. And I'm pretty sure this was like the first time there was just a worldwide uh, agreement. Actually, I think the only ever agreement worldwide to cut down um, on the use of I think of a particular chemical that was causing um, – causing the ozone layer to start to dissolve. So the uh, if it's the ozone layer, I think you're talking about uh, – um, so, so just to, again, to give this bigger context, the ozone layer uh, is that, that we're concerned about is up in the stratosphere, mm-hmm. you know, 20 kilometers above Earth and higher, and that protects us from UV. And, uh, and, and, and what can chew up, chew up the uh, ozone out there – you know, are, uh, is, is chlorine and bromine and all these halides, and we are putting that out through the CFCs, these refrigerants that uh, leak out. So we use the CFCs as refrigerants in our refrigeration cycle systems. Uh, for example, maybe about 20 years back, that's what we would have used in Chile to keep the ice uh, in the rink. Uh, those refrigerants, uh, you know, can last forever, end up in the stratosphere, and create chemistry, uh, and if you're talking about particles, uh, they can create – this chemistry happens on particles, on very special particles, nitric acid, trihydrate, and NAT particles that form because the stratosphere is so cold uh, that, that it just takes a little bit of nitric acid and very little water. There's not a lot of water there, not a lot of nitric acid, but that's enough to form these special crystalline particles, um, which are chewing up ozone but create a great site if you're – you know. Standing within the Arctic Circle, I was lucky enough to be in you know, within the Arctic Circle in Sweden, Kiruna, on a project, and you look up, and it's just it's, it's beautiful colors up in the sky uh, by these particles. Um, but they're also, you know, so dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, uh, and the ozone hole sort of you know opens up in the sense that ozone's chewed up in springtime, but gets you know mixed in and repopulated back in spring. It's not a permanent hole. But it's one where you know, for a few months, is is a you know, it's it's, it's largely uh, emptied out. Um, but yeah, that's very special kinds of particles. 
uh, but driven by the emission of these gases, CFCs, which we have now banned, and we're banned through the Montreal Protocol, uh, which is a yeah, you know, one of the uh, our last big successes uh, of a global uh, accord to take out a pollutant. Uh, you know that that was economically at that time, uh, you know, uh, very challenging to do. I mean, refrigeration systems suddenly had to go and find a new refrigerant, and something that has been used for a long time is economically. Uh, very uh, uh, alluring and to drop that and go for something else or stuff. So a lot of parallels to what's happening now with climate change, right? You know, so fossil fuels are like the refrigerant of of uh, yeah. 1980s. You know, it's cheap, alluring. That's what we want to uh, hang on to. Uh, but it it creates a global threat, and uh, and 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 you know we need to address it uh, in a, in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And kind of speaking of different policy things, I wanted to ask another question as well, dealing with um, demographics across different locations. Um, so you mentioned that the EPA regulates, you know, the air and measures the air in four thousand different locations across the U.S. Um, how can we? How do we? Uh, I guess measure air quality um, in different locations. How does that impacted by? Uh, the demographics, like population demographics of a particular location, how is it impacted by the economy in a particular area and things of that nature? So it turns out that you know a lot of these uh, these sites are actually located uh, based on demographics and so on. There are some location of these sites in 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 background locations where there aren't people. Otherwise, there's a there's a tendency to locate more sites where more people are there. Uh, the the in, in terms of the demographics right now, the big major finding is that even though we try to put more sites where people uh, there, there's more people, uh, we are finding that there is an uh, there's a problem of environmental justice, which means that you know we aren't necessarily monitoring uh, the air quality in spaces where the most vulnerable people live. You know where there's uh, there's poverty and where there are minorities. Uh, you know the the monitoring sites aren't necessarily located there. So when we talk about improvements in air quality, those would you know those who are from these general sites that might be located uh, you know at these at these at these select locations. Uh, but within let's say take a city like uh, Albany. You know, it's a small city, but even there, there, there's, there can be some pretty dramatic gradients. Are you living near a highway uh, versus are you, uh, you know, in a leafy suburb far away from uh, truck traffic? Uh, if if you take those two populations, uh, they have a very different lifetime exposure to pollutants. And and uh, and what we are finding right now is that there are certain communities, uh, and I'm working with New York State DEC a little bit on this. Uh, is that you know if you go to Albany for example there are communities that are constantly exposed to uh, you know truck traffic uh, and and with truck traffic as you have seen trucks as they take off from a uh, traffic light there's just a major uh, emission of black stuff coming out right that's a, there's a lot of black unburnt carbon coming out and that that uh, you know several lab studies have shown to be uh, have significant health impact, and and so uh, where communities live uh, can can now very strongly determine uh, you know what you're breathing. That the central one, 
site that may be measuring what Albany air looks like uh, may not represent what a good chunk of population is experiencing. And they're finding that especially uh, certain communities, uh, uh, you know, probably on the uh, low, mostly on the lower end of the economic scale, uh, and 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 maybe and also somewhat heavily weighted towards uh, you know minorities, uh, they are the ones that that are suffering significantly from poorer air qualities, even while, while the general air quality is improving, and uh, and so yeah, so there's a, there's a movement to try and, uh, and 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 EPA is pushing towards using new technologies that aren't as expensive as the four as what we have in the four thousand sites. So th- those technologies are are expensive to put in, expensive to maintain. Some of those require, you know, a full-time attendant and so on. And so we're trying to ask the question, can we monitor air quality not maybe in 4,000, not just in 4,000 locations, could it be 400,000 locations? And if you're going to do that, we're not going to be scaling what we have because that requires a lot of manpower and so on, and it's just not feasible. So there's a big push towards low-cost sensing technologies. And that's something that we are deeply involved in, uh, and these low-cost sensing technologies, uh, you know, rely on on uh, on techniques. That it's it's a you know they rely on development of new sensors that have, have become low-cost because of the way they design these right on day one to be mass-produced, to be precise, even if it's not accurate. So you have hundred of these, and they give you similar readings. Then you can always scale it to the correct value to build an accuracy out of it. And uh, so these new technologies with uh, new data mining technologies uh, using machine learning, uh, you know, we are able to now make reasonably accurate measurements with these low-cost sensors that are, you know, uh, maybe 1,000 times cheaper than uh, than uh, than the high-cost ones. We're talking about sensor units that are $10 as opposed to, you know, 10,000 to 100,000. Uh, and uh, and and that is really uh, giving us a brand new look at air quality. You know, at, at scales that we could never imagine before. Um, and in our in our, in our lab, you know, we are developing some of these low cost technologies. We are we're looking at the data analytics from these. We're looking at you know how do we push stuff to the cloud? How do we do machine learning out there? How do we extract information from that? That's all stuff that we're trying to do. Additionally. Uh, we've also done a little bit of work in asking the question, you know, could we could we rely on what you know uh, what we call extremely hyper hyper local measurement, where you know you might take a picture of something, and could we extract information from that about what what the air quality looks like? So we just published a paper on how do we extract PM two point five uh, uh, values from photographs, and, and as you can imagine, you, know, you you can we can get millions of photographs. Uh, a day from a single location. So theoretically, there's an infinite possibility in terms of time resolution and spatial resolution of getting getting this data. Um, as as we start deploying these sorts of technologies, in the end, I think it'll be this these hybrid, low cost technologies that will really democratize air quality measurements. And this is this becomes especially important because right now the biggest air quality problems are 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 in the are in the developing world. Where you know with the the increasing use of fossil fuel energy, uh, you know we are putting out pollution at levels that that are you know uh, clearly unsustainable. You know this, the air quality there is so bad that that the impacts on health are dramatic. Uh, and and trying to set up an EPA 
quality station everywhere in the world, you know, in all of Africa and Asia and so on, is, is going to be challenging. So these low-cost centers are, are, are the way to go, whether they're in the form of photographs or in the form of these light scattering uh, sensors. Uh, and so we are deeply involved in, in trying to understand the quality of the data, trying to how do we make sense of the data, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, just, just trying to, to, to uh, get information from that that that's, will allow us to make uh, uh, health impact studies. Yeah, uh, $10 a sensor, that's pretty much the same cost as a carbon monoxide detector. So even you could employ them in everybody's homes, too, just to get the full data spectrum of that. Yeah, and, and you know, this um, uh, five years back, there were, there were probably no – I mean, these sensors didn't exist in the market or, or they were very, um, you know, rarely uh, seen. Uh, to, to now where they're they're becoming ubiquitous, uh, um, and like you said, uh, the the push is to make them um, like the carbon monoxide sensors, uh, just placed everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mandatory, I think. Yeah. I mean, it really shows the um, ability to when people actually invest in a particular technology and it starts to become more relevant, how fast things can actually adapt. And just go forward. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, adoption of technology. Uh, you know, if 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 people see value in it, uh, you know, it just spreads like uh, I would hate, hate to use wildfire, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so talking about um, the current state of the field um, and applications. So uh, as far as innovation goes, what are the more current innovations that are happening in the field and what are you most excited about um, as far as like research or things that are currently being published? Um, so a few things. I think, I think you know, what the pandemic has shown, shown is that we need to have better sensors that can detect biological particles in the air. So right now, uh, most of what – so we're doing a lot of uh, identification of biology in the air, and we do that by collecting particles in a cassette and taking the cassette to a lab and, and, and using classical microbiology techniques to understand what is in the air. Um, I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be a, a great push to be able to detect them right in situ, in place. You know, could we have a detector in this room, which, you know, if one of us were – uh, COVID positive, uh, and 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 putting out particles with SARS-CoV-2 virus in there, uh, you know the detector would tell us saying you know uh, that, that that there is stuff in the air that uh, that should be of concern that we should be either jacking up the ventilation system or we should be <coughs> you know leaving the room and uh, and and I think in ten years that's that, that you know I see a, a lot of progress towards that. There's, there's a lot of talk regarding that. There's a, there's funding that's going towards it, and we are trying to work on that field in that field also. And I think that's that excites me. Uh, I think that's going to be big. Um, one other thing that we are working on, we're doing a lot of studies here uh, on campus, trying to still understand, <clears throat> you know, what are the emissions we are really putting out? You know, one of the things that we realized during the pandemic is uh, there's a huge uncertainty about, uh, you know, what are we emitting when we talk and breathe and so on. And uh, and th- there are there are some studies in the lab that tell you what sort of particles we are putting out. Um, but what we want to understand is, you know, uh, in in a real world setting, 
where I'm not just reading out a passage you give me, but I'm just I have my natural vocabulary that I'm putting out. I may be teaching, and I may be loud, I may be silent. Uh, we want to understand these scenarios. You know, what is what is put out? You know, if you're in a restaurant and you're you're in a, in a bar, you know, you 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 the 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 speech patterns are different. You know, your your uh, what you emit out might be different. You know, so could we be better prepared for the next pandemic? Because from everything we know, there is going to be an next pandemic, right? So could we be better prepared to understand? You know, what are the emissions that that we put out? Uh, when do we have to worry about it? And could we could we take this identification, hopefully in real time, we can identify this in real time, saying, oh, there are, there's a lot of particles people are putting out, there's high probability that there's bacteria or something in here or virus in here. Could we now trigger the ventilation system to reduce risk? So the next time this happens, hopefully, you know, we have the whole framework set up so that we can be responding to this in real time. You know, so, so we don't need to shut down the campus. You know, uh, our, our systems, our engineering systems can kick in to take the remove the threat right from the room as and when it's put out. And uh, and so in addition to development of sensors, that involves development of algorithms that that can drive your ventilation systems and so on. That And so those are topics that, uh, you know, that, that we've been focused on quite a bit. And and and, uh, and that's something that we'll continue to focus on. And additionally, you know, uh, um, we have some other work that we are, uh, you know, working with uh, external agencies on, you know, in, in fitting some of these sensors onto drones. Uh, there's a lot of interest in putting these on drones, uh, using uh, machine learning to, again, identify particles uh, using light scattering and so on. So using much more complex light scattering patterns, but being able to identify and distinguish particles. Uh, and so there's an interesting project. We're just starting with NASA on that. Um, as we get to the moon, uh, there's concern about lunar dust and health of uh, its health impacts. And so we are trying to work with them on building a sensor to identify when a lunar when lunar dust might be entering uh, the, the you know a, the astronaut capsule. And in which case, again, you'd want to kick in the ventilation system and get that out of there because we we have you know, no studies. We don't know what the dust might do to 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 the astronauts' health. Um, so, you know, that, so I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of particle-related work that's, that's going to become interesting. And as we, as, as we, you know, get out to space more, there's going to be a lot of interest in particles, uh, extraterrestrial particles. Uh, I've already, I, I work with NASA quite a bit and JPL. Uh, and, and one big question, uh, I've been involved in committees and trying to understand how do we make sure that our processes, when we send out um, you know, these spaceships out to whether it's Mars or Moon, how do you make sure that there's minimal contamination that we send out? But more in, concerningly, we want to make sure that anything coming back uh, doesn't come back with with stuff uh, and spread around uh, on Earth um, because, you know, there's just way little uh, knowledge on, on what we bring back, so we want to be careful about it. So there's just going to be, I think, you know, there's just that that area of field is where I think uh, we're going to spend a lot of energy on. Yeah, it's a really, really huge field. Um, and space is the final frontier, as we know. Um, and 
what particular technologies do you say that we need to advance in order to actually get to that point? Uh, so, so with 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 biology, you know, uh, there, there has to be a there has to be it really it's a, it's a multi-dimensional uh, development that that's required. You know, there's that there, we need advances in chemistry uh, to do, you know, fast sequencing. We need to really improve um, sensitivity uh, with our detectors, so we can be detecting very small quantities of uh, of uh, you know. Uh, genetic material that might be available to us uh, right now. If if there's just you know one viral particle, you know, can we detect it? Answers, you know, maybe not. But you know, can we get to that kind of detection capability? And that's something that really becomes also important when we are looking for life outside of Earth. Um, and so, so you know, new advances in chemistry, new advances in uh, in electronics. Uh, and and uh, I would say, you know, um, data advances. You know, how do we how do we pull out that uh, needle from the haystack? There, you know, we're going to see a lot of stuff, and we want to be able to identify and say, you know, oh, that data that's important, and this the other stuff isn't. Uh, for example, there's this big interest in building sniffers that are, you know, literally on your cars, and you are driving around, and you want to be able to sniff out some. Agent that's a chem bio agent that's that's released in the air, uh, or, or is leaking from uh, you know a building, and you want to be able to detect it and say, "Oops, there is a threat agent right there." So all of that really requires us to push detection limits down. And that requires uh, you know engineering and science to work closely together in uh, in you know developing new new chemicals, new methodologies. Uh, pushing sensitivity levels uh, higher, um, and and yeah, and so I think there's advances I would say on, on all of those fronts that are required. And I think the uh, also the advances in machine learning are really important to not just help detect and identify these things, but also seeing further further down the line using machine learning to ask the right questions. So. Um, I've seen uh, work that was – it was – it basically took in all of the um, – took in as input all of the – as many research papers as it could find. And then it started creating its own like uh, – paper. own, own paper like topics. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. people were just like, wow, well, we could research this. They're <laughs> like, OK, so we don't even need to think about these questions anymore. We could just answer them. Yeah, no, I think I think I think the possibilities with with uh, machine learning are, uh, are somewhat limitless and and and, and really exciting, um, <clears throat> uh, and and come with their own dangers, right? I mean, that's uh, uh, it, it. A lot depends on how you train the algorithms and how you use it. What you deploy for? Is it for public good or is it for you know public monitoring? So there's a lot of ethical questions, uh, and that needs to be addressed without doubt. But uh, but but I think on just pure hardcore science basis, um, very very helpful. Yeah, we're doing a really small, very small but very interesting project. We just collected you know 20 years of data from our organization where we present material conferences. We're asking the question, yeah, just looking at abstracts. What are the big topics? What are the top 10 topics in the last 10 years? 
and which ones are trending down, which ones are trending up. And we're not asking people, we're asking the data, <laughs> right? And so we're just letting uh, these topic modeling, machine learning models that, that can extract topics to say, you know, just pick out these topics and tell us which ones are going up, which ones are going down. It's just, you know, it's just interesting to see which way are the fields moving and do they do they match with uh, with what our perception is. And because this year is the 40th year of our organization, American Association for Aerosol Research, uh, you know, we are going to be presenting a paper on this, you know, just giving the audience a, a look at what's happening in, in, you know, in terms of the science in, uh, in their field. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just a small thing, but it just tells you the power of uh, just letting the machine tell us some things, right? It, there are other areas where we'd be afraid to let the machine uh, do its own thing. But in 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 in, uh, in looking at these ones, uh, there, there's uh, there, there's something interesting that'll come out. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's almost the end of our time. Uh, we really appreciate you having uh, having you on, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again. All right. Thank you, guys, Thank uh, you. for having me. It was a great uh, conversation, and uh, you know, good luck to everything you guys do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.